Let's jump into our message this morning. We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order to discover for ourselves who Jesus was, what he did, what he really taught, and what he really said. And I want to encourage you today, I was just thinking about it, even with a a note and a pen, why do we do that? One of the reasons is because uh, we want to learn, we want to take notes from the Word of God, but also because even that simple action of having a pen and paper communicates to yourself that you're here in faith believing that God has something to say to you, believing that God is going to speak. So there's something even more profound going on than just writing notes. It's setting an expectation for yourself that the Holy Spirit through the word of God is going to say something that's gonna impact your life. So I commend you for doing that. And last week we heard Jesus' famous teaching from John 10 where he describes himself as the good shepherd and the door of the sheep. And we were reminded of the incredible eternal security that every saved person has. We weren't saved by anything we did and so we can't lose our salvation by anything we do. We're saved and kept saved by what Jesus has done. This week, Jesus is gonna answer a very straightforward question about who is and who is not saved. And he's gonna enjoy lunch with a surprising host and in their conversation, we're gonna be confronted with the issue of recognition. We all want it, whether we say it or not. We all crave it and pretty much all of us are either frustrated or downcast when we feel like we don't get it. So what does Jesus have to say about this issue of recognition? Let's find out. We're going to jump in in Luke chapter 13, verse 23. Then one said to him, this is one person in the crowd, and this is just continuing what we did last week, really. So Jesus has been saying, I am the door to the sheep. I'm the only way. I am the good shepherd. And then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? You see, the Jews believed that all of them would essentially be saved by default. They decided that since God had made Israel his chosen people, that must mean that they would all be automatically saved as a birthright of just being Jewish. And we know that God made them to be a chosen nation of evangelists to tell the world about him, but that's not the way Israel chose to see things. They chose to see themselves as chosen and blessed by God and everyone else as rejected and cursed by God. And the Jewish people believed that all Jews, except for tax collectors and other notorious sinners, would be saved. So imagine how strange it must have been when Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, is seemingly trying to start a ministry by saying things like, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there's few who find it. They would have been thinking, well, we already found it. We're Jewish. Jesus talked about salvation having a real cost and not being automatic just because you were born a Jew. He even seemed to try and discourage those who were half-hearted from following God. And he warned a disturbing amount of people, including the Jewish religious leaders, that many of them were not actually saved. So even though the crowds were still showing up for Jesus, less and less people were actually following him. You see, they were showing up for the miracles. They were showing up to see him go toe-to-toe with the religious authorities, but they weren't lining up to follow Jesus. And the greatest evidence of this is that after three years, this is mind-blowing, after three years of Jesus Christ ministering on the earth, doing miracles, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, cleansing lepers, teaching with the wisdom and the knowledge no one has ever heard before, three years to build a ministry when it's all said and done, On the day of Pentecost, there's 120 people 
in the upper room. That's it. It doesn't have satellite campuses anywhere else. It's 120 people who at the end of everything actually believe and follow Jesus. And that's where the church starts. Despite the crowds of thousands he taught to, the hundreds that he healed, when it all came down to it, there's 120 followers, 120 disciples who are still with him after his resurrection. So someone is asking Jesus, are you saying for real that not all Jews are gonna be saved? And our culture would say it like this, are you saying that not everyone's gonna be saved, that it's not all going to work out in the end for everybody? So let's hear from Jesus. Will God save everybody or only certain people? And I wanna point out that if you are a serious seeker of truth, you always have to be prepared for the possibility that the truth may be different to what you would like it to be. If you reject truth simply because it differs from what you want it to be, then you are not by definition a seeker of truth. You're simply a man yelling in a cave waiting for his echo to return to his ears as confirmation of the beliefs that he already holds. So Jesus responds to the man as though he is a genuine seeker of truth. And if you are a genuine seeker of truth, you very quickly realize the question is not, are there few who are saved, but rather, am I saved? That's the question a real seeker asks. And Jesus is gonna answer that question for the man. And it's a good reminder for us when we ponder things like, Well, what's gonna happen to all the people who lived in the dark ages when the Catholic Church restricted access to the Bible for almost a thousand years? Or what about men who grew up in the jungle without the gospel? Or what about those cultures that were never reached? What's God gonna do with them? Jesus would say, God's gonna do what's right. That's what God's gonna do. Don't worry about it, trust God. If you're really that concerned about the people in the jungle, then go and tell them. Go and tell them, unless, What we're really doing is pretending to be a seeker and asking these faux philosophical questions so that we can delay dealing with the question ourselves, am I saved? Am I saved? The most important question in the world, make a note of this, is am I saved? Am I saved? We read on, and he, Jesus said to them, strive to enter through, and then underline the narrow gate, the narrow gate, For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So he's not talking about striving in the sense of our efforts being what save us. He's talking about striving against the things which try to stop us from receiving the truth. We know salvation is by grace alone, but we still have to battle things like our pride. We still have to battle things like our desire to sin. We still have to battle the fact that we live in a world that hates Jesus. These are the obstacles that get in the way of a person entering through the narrow gate and finding Jesus. And I had you underline the narrow gate because when Jesus says that many seek to enter and will not be able, the idea is not that they try to get in but they don't fit through the door. The idea is they're trying to find some other way in. They want in. They want to be saved, they want a relationship with God, they want to be right with God, and they are striving and they are seeking, but they refuse to enter by the narrow gate. They're looking for some other way in. But the issue is not how hard you try to get in. The issue is where you look for access. And there's only one point of access. That's what Jesus is saying. You know, I'm so glad that Jesus said there was only one way, because if he had made five ways, Satan would have made 
25 counterfeit ways. And if Jesus had made 25 ways, Satan would have made hundreds of ways. And if you think about it, the Lord did the most loving thing he could. He said, there's one way. I wanna make this as unconfusing and clear as possible. There's one way, and he made it explicit that it's Jesus. Our culture doesn't like the word narrow, does it? Especially when it comes to truth. We're told repeatedly that we need to be more open-minded, to expand our thinking. But when there's only one truth, you have to be narrow and specific about it. You see, we understand this when it comes to math. We understand that one plus one equals two. Because math is not a subject where relative truth, the truth being whatever you choose it to be, works. Relative truth doesn't work in math, otherwise math wouldn't exist. Math works on the concept of absolutes generally, and the same is true when it comes to God. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So am I narrow-minded when it comes to my spirituality? You bet I am. You bet I am. Why? Because wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. So make a note of this. People delay their decision to follow Jesus, firstly because it's not easy. They delay that decision, they look for some other way because it's not easy. We can also understand by implication that if it's presented as easy, then it's probably not a realistic portrayal of what the gospel is, of what it means to follow Jesus because Jesus never pitched following him as easy. He always said you gotta take up your cross, you gotta be willing to lay down your life. The way is narrow, it's difficult, only a few find it. It has a real cost. There's a price we have to be willing to pay. And on the day of the great white throne judgment, that time in the future when all humanity who has not believed upon Jesus will be judged by Jesus, there will be many, Jesus is saying, who will protest and say that they deserve entry into heaven because they were a good person. Jesus is going to tell us what's going to happen at that time is they protest they're being rejected from God's kingdom. And in our text, Jesus is specifically addressing the unbelieving Jews that he's speaking to. And he has some sobering words for them. Verse 25, underline the first word, when, when. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, so not if, but when. It is a certainty that the master of the house will shut the door at some point. Just make a note of this before we go on. Salvation is a limited time offer. It's a limited time offer. The earthly life of every single person in this room is going to end at some point. Not in centuries, but in decades, without exception. And when your earthly life ends, the offer of salvation will be over. You will have either accepted it or rejected it, and you'll be out of time. And as we'll see, the men Jesus is addressing are in grave danger of having lived lives around the kingdom without ever having entered into the kingdom. So verse 25, he says, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you, now just begin to underline all these yous here, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. 
You see, they had deluded themselves into thinking they knew God, but they didn't. They had no relationship with him. And when you knock on someone's door in the middle of the night, how many of you know they don't open the door because you think you know them? They open the door if they know you. And Jesus is telling these Jews, you have no relationship with your heavenly father. You only think you do. Remember last week, Jesus has just taught that he's the door, the only way to the father. And now he's telling everyone, I'm the door, but the door is not gonna be open forever. The picture here bears striking similarity to the days of Noah, who preached repentance to the world around him for 120 years. 120 years. I spoke at a camp of dads and sons last night and I told them, you know, some of you have wives who bug you because you've been working on the same project for three years. Noah built the ark for 120. And you just need to let your wife know that, that you're doing pretty good by his standards. And yet no one responded. No one responded to Noah's preaching for 120 years. That's a good thing for pastors to remember, right? Oh, oh you don't feel like people are responding. Noah taught 120 years. Not one person even saying that was good. Just people laughing at him and ignoring him. All the way up to the day Noah and his family entered the ark by its only door. And the Bible says the Lord closed the door of the ark. Then it began to rain and the awful truth began to dawn on the people of the earth. And though they banged on the door of the ark and pled to be let in, no doubt crying out, we're sorry, we believe. The time had passed, the opportunity was over, the door was closed. After 120 years of preaching, 120 years of having the giant ark there as a visual warning, nobody could say they hadn't been warned. Nobody could say it wasn't fair. God made a way for everyone to be saved, but only Noah listened. You know, Fort McMurray is still burning, and I read that the government can't actually force anybody to evacuate. So the best they can do is go around knocking on everyone's doors and say there's an evacuation, which means it is recommended that you get out of town. But if people say, no, this is my home, I love this place. This is where I grew up. All the stuff I love is here. If that's what they say and they say, I'm not leaving, they can't remove them against their will. There's nothing the fire department can do. And you know, if anyone who did that died in the fire, I don't think there's a person on the planet who would say, we need to launch an investigation into the Fort McMurray Fire Department and their negligence that caused this person to die. Nobody would make that accusation against the firemen. Everyone would say, what a tragedy. How foolish that they didn't listen. When the fire department did everything they could, they made a way, they gave a warning, and they just wouldn't listen. When that day comes, future judgment of every person, lots and lots of people will be pleading with Jesus as Lord, but Jesus will respond the same way he did on the earth and say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Even when he was on the earth, there were people calling him Lord, and to a group of them he said, what, what do you call me Lord? Lord means master. You don't do anything that I ask you to do. I'm not your Lord. I'm not your master. It's not just a title. It's a position in our lives. He's the master. He's the boss. He's the one who sets the agenda. And even when he was on the earth, Jesus warned him, don't call me Lord if I'm not your Lord. Don't call me your God if I'm not your God. Isaiah the prophet wrote these wise words. I put them on your outline. He said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he'll have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. It's a limited time offer. Now really imagine this is a conversation taking place between Jesus and a group of religious Jewish leaders who think they're saved. Jesus is getting so personal. He's not talking about a man. He's saying you, 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 you to them. And he gives them a preview. He's saying, let me explain to you guys how it's gonna happen when you're standing before me one day. Verse 26, he says, then you will begin to say, this is really personal, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets, which he probably had that very day. But he, he's actually speaking about himself in the third person. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. You see, they ask questions about the door. They debated about how narrow or wide the door was or how narrow or wide it should be. They listened to people talk about the door, but they never actually entered through the door. And even though they hung out at the same places as Jesus, even though they went to parties that Jesus attended, that's not going to be enough to save them. They had no relationship with him. You see, they knew about the Lord, but they don't know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. So write this down. People delay their decision to follow Jesus because they assume they're already saved. They assume they're already saved. I'm a good person, I believe in God. I come from a Christian family, I go to church, but they never actually follow Jesus. They never actually enter through the door. They never actually place their trust in Jesus. And when we stand before the Lord one day, if we choose to stand on our own record, our our own actions, the Bible tells us that compared to the holiness and perfection of God. This is the literal language the Bible uses. It says when we go, look at all this good stuff I did, the Bible says the very best things we have to offer are like filthy rags before God. That's the term it uses in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, I'm sorry. Filthy rags, filthy rags. Jesus is telling these men and us the same thing the Lord recorded through Jeremiah the prophet. He said, but those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord, that they know me and understand that I'm the Lord. These men didn't know the Lord. And in Matthew's gospel later on, Jesus would be even more graphic about what'll happen on judgment day. He said, then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 28, Jesus says, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a Hebrew expression for extreme disappointment. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus describes the place they'll be sent as outer darkness, the complete absence of light, both physical and spiritual. So he says, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. What a disturbing scene Jesus is painting for these religious Jewish listeners. He's saying, you guys love to say things like, we're children of Abraham. Look at our lineage. We're Jews. We have Jacob and Abraham as our father. Isaac. Jesus is saying, you're going to see those men in the kingdom of God as you are cast out. 
And then it's going to dawn on you that those men are not in the kingdom of God because they're Jewish. They're in the kingdom of God because they knew me. It's heavy, heavy stuff, deeply personal stuff, Jesus is saying. Verse 29, he keeps talking and he says, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. They understand that Jesus is saying, oh, the Gentiles are going to be coming into the kingdom of God. They'll be there, but you won't. Can you imagine the tension? Verse 30, and indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. So in this context, the last who will be first seems to refer to the Gentiles, and the first who will be last seems to refer to the Jews. Jesus is telling them, once again, things are going to be completely flipped in the kingdom of God completely upside down from how they perceive things to be. Those who have been left out are gonna be brought in. Us losers, the Gentiles. So write this down. People delay their decision to follow Jesus because they're unwilling to humble themselves. They're unwilling to humble themselves. The men Jesus was talking to were thinking, we're Jews, we're the spiritual elite because we're Jews. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you need to repent and have your sins forgiven. That's the only thing that's going to save you. And their pride and their ego is standing in the way of them being saved. You realize the first step in becoming a believer is recognizing that you're a sinner who desperately needs saving because you cannot save yourself. And then as you grow in the faith, you realize that not only can you not save yourself, but you didn't even deserve saving in the first place. Accepting these truths requires a degree of humility that many people find difficult to swallow. Verse 31, it says, On that very day some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. They're not saying this out of concern for Jesus, but just a desire to either shut him up or drive him back into the region of Judea around Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin would have legislative authority, jurisdiction, so that they could arrest him. I love Jesus' answer. And he said to them, go tell that fox. And here's the great thing. Jesus uses the feminine word of the Greek noun. So what he's actually saying is, go tell that vixen. And the Pharisees were terrified of Herod. They must have been astounded at the boldness of Jesus. You see, he feared no man. And to help you understand how shocked they would have been to hear anybody speak out loud about Herod this way, I gotta tell you the the story of a man named Peter Cartwright. He was a 19th century circuit preacher and he was informed one Sunday that American President Andrew Jackson was going to be in the congregation. So as he stood up to preach that morning, he said, I've been informed that our nation's president, Andrew Jackson, is in attendance this morning and I have been asked to guard my speech accordingly. So I will only say this, if Andrew Jackson does not repent, he will go to hell. That's what he said right there. And I love his boldness and they say, everyone was wondering what's gonna happen after the service and Andrew Jackson never became a believer but he did walk up to Peter Cartwright after the service, shake his hand and say, if I had a regiment of men like you, I would whip the whole world. That's what he told him. Peter Cartwright had this fearless boldness with the gospel and the shock in his audience when he said that about Andrew Jackson would have been the same sort of shock that the Pharisees would have experienced when Jesus said, you go tell that vixen. And here's what Jesus goes on to say, go tell that vixen, 
Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Perfected actually means resurrected. This was a Jewish style of speaking that Jesus was using to make one simple point, that he was on his own timeline. He was on his own timeline. His movements and actions would not be dictated by what anybody else was doing or what anybody else wanted to do to him. Jesus was saying, hey, for the next two days, I'm gonna keep doing exactly what I've been doing, casting out demons and healing the sick. And then on the third day, he says, I'm gonna be perfected. And what's interesting is after this interaction, Jesus will begin shortly, the very next day, his journey toward Jerusalem for the last time. And that journey is literally gonna take three days. And so Jesus is telling them, you go tell that vixen, I'm gonna be walking to Jerusalem, the next two days I'm gonna heal the sick, cast out demons, and then when I get to Jerusalem, I'm gonna do what I came to do. Basically saying, he's not gonna stop me. Verse 33, he says, nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following it, those next three days. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Not all prophets were killed in Jerusalem. John the Baptist, for example, was most likely killed at Herod's palace in Tiberias, but this was most likely a saying of the day because if you don't know already, Israel was infamous for killing all of their own prophets. Almost every Jewish prophet was killed by their own people. Every messenger that God sent to them, they would kill, pretty much. And so this was a a saying of irony. Jesus is saying this ironically, he's saying, because it can't be that a prophet should die outside of Jerusalem. I mean, if it's a prophet sent to his own people, that's what happens to prophets. We're killed in Jerusalem, so I guess I better get going. That's what he's saying. So after explaining to his own people, the Jews, that most of them would not be saved because their faith was in their ethnicity, it was in their lineage, it was in their traditions, not in the Lord, that they had no relationship with God. After explaining that to them and pointing out that they had killed almost every prophet and messenger God had sent to them, we now get a glimpse at the heart of Jesus. Because if I were Jesus, I would have said, so good riddance to all of you. But that's not what he does. You see, he's heartbroken over their rejection of him. And this is what he says in verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted, and I want you to underline I wanted, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And then underline, but you were not willing. There's incredible tenderness in the imagery and verbiage that Jesus is using. He's using the way a, a mother hen would gently bring her chicks under her wings and protect them from the wind and the rain and put them in the place of safety. And how can you not be just astounded and impressed with the character of Jesus. Just as a man, just as who he is. I'm so impressed by the character of Jesus, his love and compassion and mercy toward those who killed his prophets and stoned those sent to minister to them is unbelievable. He's displaying the heart that he wants us to have, the heart that really does pray for one's enemies, not desiring to see their destruction but desiring to see their salvation. And I don't pretend for a moment that that's an easy thing to do when you actually have to do it. It's not. But perhaps there's someone in your life who the Lord is bringing to mind and using this text to remind you to rather grieve over their sin than desire their judgment and see their sin destroy them. To pray for their salvation rather than their condemnation. 
He's not an easy example to follow, is he? Jesus is not an easy example to follow. His, his grace and mercy are scandalous. So write this down. The Lord grieves over those who despise and reject him. He grieves over those who despise and reject him. And this outpouring of divine compassion is really a preview of what Jesus will do as he rides into Jerusalem on the day we know as Palm Sunday. And on that day as well, he's going to be overcome by deep emotion and grief over his own people's hard-heartedness. And Jesus will prophesy the terrible consequences that will soon fall on them as a people because of their rejection of him. In Luke 19, it records this event and it says, I'll read it to you. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, if you'd only been willing to see, but now they're hidden from your eyes. This is referring to the hardening of their hearts that Paul speaks about in Romans eleven twenty-five, And now Jesus prophesies the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which will take place in 70 AD. He says, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So what an amazing thing that Jesus is weeping over the people who kill everyone he sends to minister to them. What an amazing thing that he desires to bring comfort to them and peace to them and healing to them. The Lord will never force himself upon you or I, never. And I can't help wondering how often have I, how often have we missed out on the Lord's comfort, on the Lord's joy, on the Lord's strength, simply because we were not willing. He was, but we wouldn't go to him. First Peter, it famously says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. So now look at verse 34 in John 10 again. It reads, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And I can't pass this up because the opportunity is too good. If you hold to a Calvinist view of salvation, in other words, if you believe that everything is predestined, that we have no free will, that everything is predetermined, you're gonna have a real, real problem with this text. You're gonna have to do some serious contortion work with this text. You're gonna have to manipulate it and twist it and bend it to make it say something other than what it is saying very, very plainly because Jesus is explicitly saying that his desire is that the Jews would turn to him and find shelter in him. He's weeping over it. Literally, he's distraught over it. And Jesus is also explicitly sharing that the reason it hasn't happened is because they were not willing. The issue is their will was different to his will. And so if Jesus is just forcing everyone to do whatever they want, why is he weeping? Why is he weeping if he's the one who determined that they were gonna do this? That doesn't make any kind of sense. Very simply, Jesus is honoring their free will. He's respecting their decision and choice. He's allowing man the sovereignty of turning to him or turning away from him. It's a smaller version of what Peter wrote when he said, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. In other words, it's not the will of God that anybody perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
makes it as clear as day that the will of God is that nobody perishes. He wants everyone to be saved. Yet we know from even today's text, clearly there will be those who perish. The issue is not that God isn't strong enough to do what he wants. So the only explanation is that God has a desire that everyone be saved, yet everyone will not be saved because he is honoring the sovereignty of man's free will. It's an amazing thing, and this text makes that very, very clear. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So now Jesus is going to refer again to their coming judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem, which will happen in 70 AD. He says, see, your house is left you desolate. That word desolate just means abandoned. And this still continues today, spiritually. Israel's back in the land as a nation, but they have no king, they have no priest, and they have no temple. They have a house. They're supernaturally protected, but their house is spiritually desolate. And he says, and assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until, underline until, because it doesn't say unless, it says until, until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You guys know this, the Bible teaches that because the Jews rejected Jesus during his time on earth, they're now under a partial hardening of their hearts, a temporary blindness which comes from God. Once again, because they wouldn't see, they're now unable to see. But the Lord is nowhere near done with the Jews. And that's evident here too, when Jesus says, when they, the Jews as a people, see Jesus again, their response will not be, oh no, he's coming. But rather, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, it's gonna be a good day for them. Why? Because after going through the difficulties of the great tribulation described from chapter four on in the book of Revelation, the Lord will lift the hardness and the blindness that's presently on the Jews and they'll recognize him as Messiah. I know we talk about this a lot, but I want us to be rock solid in this. It's that moment described in Zechariah 12.10 when the Lord promises, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. It'll be a good day. It'll be a blessed day. But it will start with mourning as they lament over the fact that for 2,000 years they missed their Messiah. And in this moment, Jesus is grieving over their refusal to believe in him. And he's grieving over what the next 2,000 years are going to hold for the Jewish people. I want to give you some homework. You see, whenever Jesus quotes from a psalm, it's always worth going on a little treasure hunt to that psalm. One example is Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22. You can go and read all of Psalm 22 and it just expands and that whole psalm is about Jesus being on the cross. So anytime Jesus quotes from a psalm, you want to go there and see if there's something deeper in that whole psalm. And Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118 when he says, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So I want to challenge you to go home, read that in the context Jesus is quoting it in, which would be read it from the perspective of a Jew at the end of the tribulation when Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah and Israel is saved and they see for the first time. It's an extraordinary exercise. Don't do it now. I know you want to. Wait until the end of the service at least. We'll just keep going into chapter 14. It says... 
Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread. As we pointed out before, Jesus never turns down an invitation that involves food, even if it's at a Pharisee's house. Aren't they plotting to kill you, Jesus? Yeah, but they make a great lamb stew. Just like lunch after church on Sundays, Lunch after synagogue was a big part of Jewish life. And if you were a rabbi, which Jesus was, and were visiting another synagogue, it was expected courtesy that the leaders of that synagogue would invite you over to their house for lunch, whether they liked you or not. So he goes there on the Sabbath, and it says that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy is a condition where fluid is retained in the tissues and cavities of the body. It's often caused by kidney or liver ailments, including cancers, and it causes you to retain fluid in cavities of your body and can actually lead you to the point of becoming disfigured. And why were they watching Jesus closely? Because it's obviously a setup. The sick man's not there by accident. They generally believed sick people were cursed, so they wouldn't have invited him over for lunch except to try and trap Jesus because they know Jesus has been healing on the Sabbath. Jesus loves healing on the Sabbath. He seems to literally try and heal on the Sabbath just to bug the Pharisees, but they thought it was sinful. So they've created this no-win situation where they've got this probably disfigured sick person there, but it's a Sabbath, and they're thinking, oh, this is great. He's gonna heal him on the Sabbath in front of all these witnesses, clearly break the law, or he's gonna look like an uncaring jerk by not healing this sick guy. This is absolutely brilliant. And this is the situation they've presented. And they haven't thought of one thing. Before any of them can say anything, Jesus does the most brilliant thing. Verse three, and Jesus answering, here's what I love. You notice it says answering, but nobody's actually asked him a question yet. I love that. And you'll find out why. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers, which are just the scribes and Pharisees, before they can say anything about the man. Jesus asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And here's why that's genius, because Jesus has literally just flipped the whole thing back on them. He's basically saying, you guys know I can heal this man. What do you think? Should I do it? And now they look like uncaring jerks if they say, no, don't do it because of the law. And they look like they're promoting breaking the law if they tell them to do it, which is why verse four says, but they kept silent. They kept silent. They had never been able to refute his logic before and they couldn't answer him right now. It says, and he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them. Again, even though they didn't ask anything, he knows what they're thinking. And he answers a question which they haven't asked. He answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that's fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. See, everybody understood if you have an ox or a donkey that's fallen in a pit, it's it's just the humane thing to do if you're a decent human being to pull him out. And you also have to do it out of economic necessity. He stays down there and dies because he's injured. You, You can't afford to replace him. It's a big deal. Everybody understood that. And so Jesus is saying, if you get that logic, why, why are you having a problem over me helping a man on the Sabbath? Unsurprisingly, they have no answer. So make a note of this. The bigger issue here is that love has to win over legalism. Love has to win over legalism. And we can be just as prone to fall into their trap as the Pharisees were. Now, I'm not saying that it is okay to break the word of God, to break the laws in God's word, in the name of love. And I wanna be clear that that's not what Jesus is doing. 
Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath. He was breaking their laws that they had added, but he wasn't breaking the law of God that God had given at all. So love has to win over legalism, and we can fall into this trap when we say to God, okay, God, I know you want me to do this, so I'm gonna do this, and that will be my service in this area, and then we, we completely shut God off if he wants to ask us to do any more. So maybe we say, I know the Bible says I need to tithe, so I'm gonna tithe, and then we just shut God off, and if God says, hey, yes, I want you to tithe, but I wanna put someone on your heart who's in a situation right now, and I want you to help him out because I've given you the resources to do that, and we go, la, 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 I'm not listening, not listening, I tithe, I tithe, I tithe, I tithe, I tithe, I tithe. We do the same thing. We're letting legalism win out over love or we draw lines and say, God, you can have my whole life, but in this area, I'm never gonna serve more than this. I serve in church and I know my neighbor needs help, but I serve in church, so that box is checked. And Jesus is saying, hey, just understand that love has to win out over legalism. You have to have the heart of God in everything and everything. These Pharisees wanted to keep the Sabbath as a day of rest. That's a good thing. They started out wanting to honor the law of God, but they turned that blessing into a burden when they established all these extra rules that God never gave to them to try and help them keep the one rule that God did give to them. They had good intentions, but it turned it into a burden. And Jesus is saying, listen guys, the heart of God and every law that he gives you is love for you. That's why he gives you those laws. So when there is no love in you keeping the law of God, then you're missing the point. My prayer is that we'll always be open to what the Lord wants to do through us, even if it's inconvenient, even if it messes up our precious routine. Verse seven, it says, so he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. In this case, it actually means the best room. So the religious leader of the synagogue would have been a wealthy gentleman and he has a home with many rooms and when they eat, they actually go into different rooms in the house and whichever room you made it into would be indicative of your importance. So there was a, a main room number one, then there was a second most important and a third most important. So when it's time for dinner, Jesus notices there's like a scramble. These guys are like scrambling to get into the most important room and get a seat first. It's like a weird grown-up version of musical chairs. This is what Jesus is seeing because they all want to get a seat to show how important they are by getting a seat in the best place. So Jesus says to them, verse 8, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, we'll talk about that more next week, do not sit down in the best place lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you haven't picked up on this yet, Jesus loves talking about how things are gonna be upside down in the kingdom. On earth, there's a scramble as each person looks to make their mark, climb the ladder, gain recognition, become someone important or famous. Yet in heaven, those who lived for their own ambitions are going to be the least. And not only that, but they're going to get demoted in front of guys and girls who lived their lives 
just seeking to be faithful to Jesus and make him famous. In other words, the guys in the high seats in heaven are all gonna probably be people that we're gonna go, who? I never saw you on TV. I never read your book. I didn't listen to your podcast. Who, who are you? Jesus says, if you wanna be great in the kingdom of God, humble yourself. Be willing to be the servant of all in this life. Then you'll be great in the next life. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Things are gonna be so different. Our narcissistic selfie culture is not the path that believers are called to walk. We're to be humble, not seeking our own fame or notoriety, but instead seeking to make much of Jesus. Proverbs 25 says almost the same thing. It says, do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of the great for it's better that he say to you, come up here than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. You see, there are princes in this life. There are important people. But I don't wanna be great in the eyes of princes. I wanna be great in the eyes of the king. I wanna seat at his table. And I love that the Lord doesn't say, shame on you for having ambition. Wanting to be great is something wrong. Do you notice that he never actually says that? Instead, the Lord says, turn your ambitions, turn your desire for greatness from the earth toward heaven. Strive to be great there. Seek to be applauded and recognized there. We should all have ambitions and desires of greatness, but the desire to be great in the kingdom of heaven. I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. I hope you do as well. Write this down. Believers should have the ambition to be great in the kingdom of God. Believers should have the ambition to be great in the kingdom of God. I love that Jesus doesn't say, if you seek to be exalted, you'll be humbled, so never seek to be exalted. He actually says, no, if you want to be exalted, you should have that drive to want to be great. Here's how you do it. Humble yourself, then you'll be exalted. Which is mind-blowing because we miss the fact that Jesus is literally saying, uh, you can use the motivation of wanting to be great to cause yourself to be humble. So if the reason you're humble is because you really want to be great, Jesus is cool with that. It's pretty ironic, although it's really hard to be humble. It's a sort of a dichotomy. It's a wonderful sort of problem. But Jesus is taking all of our ambition and he's redirecting it. He's redirecting it. And so that we still work well at our jobs, so that we don't come in and do a shoddy job because our logic is, well, you know, I'm not really looking for a promotion ever because I'm just looking to be humble. He says, no, 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 strive to be great, but strive to be great in the kingdom of God. Work hard, but work hard for the recognition of the Lord. We're gonna talk about that more in a minute. I was reading through this and I was just searching and thinking, man, what, what is the, the personal application here? What, what does God wanna say to us individually? And this is what I feel like the Lord put on my heart. You know, how many of us are frustrated because of what we perceive as a lack of recognition. Whether it's a husband feeling like his wife doesn't appreciate how hard he works, or a wife who feels like the husband doesn't appreciate all that she does while he's at work during the day, or an employee feeling like a boss doesn't value the contributions they make to the company, or someone who feels like they're making all these sacrifices to follow Jesus but nobody's noticing, or the church volunteer who feels like, man, does anybody notice that I give up my time to come help out here? How many of us are frustrated because of what we perceive as a lack of recognition? This is the answer. 
This is the answer. Not, not to give up or get fed up or blow up, but to look up, to look up. Because all the recognition in the world will not satisfy our desire for meaning. All the recognition in the world will still leave us wanting more. If you don't believe me, go watch the Grammys, go watch the Oscars. I thought about this the other day for the first time and it's dramatic, but on the other hand, it's really sad and pathetic that you have these grown people who work their whole lives and break down crying because all they've wanted for decades is a small group of critics to tell them they matter. That's profoundly sad. These powerful people, these wealthy people, these charismatic and beautiful people are horrendously insecure and in desperate need of affirmation. That's why they break down crying when it happens. Finally, I'm recognized. Till next year when somebody else is recognized and nobody remembers you. Don't give up. Don't get fed up. Look up. The only recognition that's ever really going to satisfy, the only recognition that'll ever be enough is when we stand before the Father and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The Lord made sure that Paul wrote these words in Colossians. I put it on your outline. And whatever you do, whatever you do, do it heartily. That just means with all your strength. As to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you, you serve Christ the Lord. Do you see what God is doing? Is he saying, work hard at your job, at the tasks that are given to you, but don't do it for your boss. Do it for the Lord. Not only to honor God, but because I really believe the deeper level here is God is saying, if you do it for your boss, you're never going to be recognized in the way that you want to. You're always going to feel frustrated and underappreciated. So save yourself all that frustration and agony. Do it for the Lord. Seek recognition from the Lord. And make a note of this. Here's the truth. If we look to our Heavenly Father for the recognition we crave, we will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed. You see, God knew and God knows that if you and I work for the applause of men, we will never find meaning, purpose, or satisfaction. So in his kindness to us, he invites us to look up and live our lives for him, to work hard without complaining, to work with integrity, knowing that he is watching and that he will reward us one day in the not too distant future. But I really believe even more than that, as we relate to the Lord, he will recognize us here and now. You can hear the Lord today tell you, well done, good and faithful servant, keep going. If you and I will choose to look to him for our affirmation and recognition rather than other people. So if you're frustrated over a lack of recognition in your life, it's probably because you're looking to a person instead of the Lord. And the honest truth is that person's probably not gonna change. They're probably not. You know, when he walked the earth, Jesus didn't even need people to like him. He only needed recognition from one source, 
the Father. We saw it last week as he goes back to the place he was baptized, back to Bethabara, at a moment in his ministry where he just needs affirmation and reassurance that he's really doing the right thing. He goes back to the place where he heard his father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was enough for Jesus. That's all he needed. It's enough for us too. You don't need to wait till you get to heaven. As you pray in fellowship with the Lord today, as you wait on the Lord, you can feel his pleasure in you as a son or a daughter of his today. Just tell him you need to hear it. Tell the Lord you need to feel that and then just wait on the Lord because Isaiah says those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We're almost done. The book of Proverbs has something to tell you and I about living our lives needing constant affirmation from other people. Here's what Proverbs says. It says the fear of man brings a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for a man comes from the Lord. You see, the fear of man, worrying what others think about you, needing them to affirm you, needing those likes on your Facebook status or on your selfie. The Bible says all that stuff is a snare. It's a trap. The real place of assurance is found in relationship with the Lord. Many people seek affirmation from important people, their boss, the rich and famous, those considered successful, even family members, even parents sometimes, but, but real justice for the man or woman who's lived faithfully. What they're really looking for comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from any person. If we can learn to get our affirmation from the Lord, if we can learn to find our satisfaction in pleasing him, here's the great benefit of that. We are able to then release our spouses, release our families, release our friends, release our church, and everybody else from the burden of making us feel like we matter. And when we do that, we're able to really enjoy and appreciate the great things about our spouse and our family and our friends and our church and everybody else. And we'll even be able to love our Jerusalems, those who oppose us. Because we're not showing up in any relationship saying it's your job to make me feel like I matter. Man, is that a bad situation when you go to do something to work hard and then you're just waiting for them to say well done. If they don't, it's a nuclear bomb that's going to go off because you didn't get the recognition you wanted. If we can learn to look to the Lord for that, that'll be such a blessing to all of our earthly relationships. And if you're frustrated over lack of recognition in your life today, don't give up. Don't get fed up, don't blow up, look up. Seek the Lord, wait on the Lord, and strive to be great in the kingdom of God. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray, let's pray. Father, we pray today that you would help us to turn and to look to you. Lord, when we look at our lives and we honestly evaluate what comes out of us needing recognition from other people, we can agree with the writer of Proverbs that it's a snare. It's a trap. God, it is toxic to our marriages, to our families, to our friendships. When we place the burden on another person to make us feel like we matter. Father, give us the wisdom to instead look to the cross where your open arms and your body and your blood settle the issue forever that we matter more than we could possibly understand. 
Help us to find our meaning there. And then help us to work day in and day out for the applause of heaven. Seeking with sincerity to be great in the kingdom of God. To be the servant of all here in this life. To be willing to take the low place. Not because we're a doormat for anybody else, but because we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven where it matters. Father, free us from the need for recognition from anybody other than you, Lord God, so that we can serve others joyfully, not needing anything in return, not needing acknowledgement, not needing recognition, but deriving all our satisfaction from really knowing that you, you see, you see our heart, you see everything we do in private, Help us to live for you. Help us to work for you. Help us to find our satisfaction in feeling your pleasure with us. Father, I pray for any of us this morning who just need to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray for anyone who just needs to hear, I see you. I see you. Keep going. Keep going. Father, speak clearly in grace through your Holy Spirit today. We need to hear from you. We love you, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.